The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We have looked over the last couple weeks at who we are, both individually and corporately. That's been the, the theme so far of First uh, Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 1 is, is, is rich in doctrine and theology, especially that of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Um, the first part of of First uh, Peter chapter two, the first um, ten verses really deal with our identity, who we are, um, because of the salvation that's been been given to us. We've we've looked together at these great truths, like because we are now in Christ, we are living stones. Um, Peter says, as living stones, we are uh, fastened together, put together into a spiritual house. We are a spiritual house. Of God, we are. Uh, Peter tells us a holy priesthood. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for His own possession. These are these are uh, identities that that we are. This is who we are, and these um, inform us both individually. I I am these things, but also corporately, we are together. These, these things. And then we, we closed uh, last week um, in verse 10 or verse, verse um, 9 actually that Peter shows us to what end God has done this. So God has, we've been born again. We've been, we've been made new. We've been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been brought into the right relationships with each other. Um, for one grand big purpose. And that's what you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Um, it's, it's seen in this, this one key word here, that, right? You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that's this, this is the, the word of purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light. So what we see in verse 9 is that the purpose for which God has done these things is so that we, as his people, can proclaim to the world his excellencies. So that we can tell the world exactly what it is that God has done in us. That we once were not a people, but now we've been made a people. That once we were enemies to God, now we are not only friends of God, but we are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. This is what God has done in us. And so God has done this for this great purpose of proclaiming his excellencies to the world. So that's where we ended last, last week. Now, starting in verse um, 11, Peter takes a step further to show us that it is just as important that your walk matches your talk. 
So God has done all of these things so that we can with our mouths proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then in verse 11, Peter takes us to, to this um, truth, this realization, this reality that uh, partners with this proclamation. And that is the way we live. That now we are to live a certain way. Because we are these things, and because we've been called to proclaim these things, we are to live a certain way, a way that is in common with what God has done in us and what we proclaim. This is the way Peter says it in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's look together at what God is saying to us in these verses. It begins in um, a loving and caring way and how Peter is addressing Um, These churches that he's writing to and how God is addressing us through the apostle Peter. And he begins by saying, beloved, I urge you. I urge you. This this term here, uh, beloved or beloved, is a term of of affection. And this is a common term used throughout the New Testament to describe believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, throughout the New Testament, we are called by God, beloved. We are beloved. We are beloved. We are first and foremost beloved by God. He loves us. As his children, he loves us. Even when we did not love him, he loved us first. When we did not deserve him or his love, he loved us anyway. And he has shown his love, he's proven his love by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And so when when Peter uses this word, beloved, it carries with it this great and grand realization that God loves us. And God loves you. He loves you enough that he's given his son for for you. We are first and foremost loved by God. And now because we are beloved by God, we should live a certain way. That's that's the implication that that Peter is is saying here. Beloved, I urge you, because you are loved by God, you are now called by God to live a certain way. Because you are now loved by God and you've experienced God's love, You are now called to a change in conduct. Your identity's changed because God has loved you. Now your conduct must change because God has loved you. These are brothers and sisters. What is modern day Turkey that Peter's writing to that are beloved by God? And by extension, so are we beloved by God. But not only are these these brothers and sisters Uh, loved by God, but they are also loved by Peter. 
So when Peter uses this term, beloved, it's a, it's a term of affection that he has towards them, that Peter cares deeply for them. Peter has deep affection for them. Peter loves them. Now, it would certainly be a stretch to say that Peter loves every one of them because he knows every one of them well enough to love every one of them. There's no way that the Apostle Peter would know every one of these people who would hear or would read this letter. But Peter understands that the very fact that God loves them is enough of a reason for him to love them. And that must be the way we live too. The very fact that God loves those who are part of his kingdom, those who are a part of his family, is reason enough for us to love one another. Remember what Peter's already said, that we, we are called to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. A sincere love. This is what God has, has called us to. And this should be one of the most evident markers of a local church that they're uh, comprised of, that it's comprised of a group of people who, although they may not know each other incredibly well, they love each other deeply because the reality that God loves them is enough of a reason for me to love them. That's, this is what you see in the Apostle Peter. He loves them because God loves them. And because Peter loves them, then he is comfortable as an expression of his love urging them to a certain kind of living. And I, don't, I, I think that is very, very important, especially in our culture, in our society, because we believe that the greatest expression of love is tolerance. And when I say we, I don't mean me, I just mean our, our culture, that the, the greatest expression of love is, is tolerance. If you love someone, then you, you should show tolerance to them regardless of how it is that they live. If it brings them joy, then the right expression of love is to approve of that. But that is not what we see in the Apostle Peter. And that is not what we see in the Scriptures. Peter loves them, beloved, and his love for them moves Peter to urge them to live a certain way. To live in a way that goes with God's righteousness. To live in a way that uh, models God's holiness. To live in a way that submits itself to God's word. This is a loving expression. I, I believe this is one of the greatest expressions of love that we can have. It's to say, one of the most important things for you is to live in a way that is in step with God's word. When, when, Paul, when Peter uses this word, uh, beloved, I urge you. This word urge here is an interesting term that he uses. And it literally means one called alongside you see, a genuine Christian love is one that moves us to come alongside one another, to help one another to this end. 
which is the glory of God. This urging of the Apostle Peter is not one that just comes from a high horse. It's not one that just comes from an ivory tower and a long distance off that just says, I'm going to give you some commands and you go and do it. But instead, it's a love, it's an urging that says, I'm going to come alongside of you and I am going to help you live this way. And that's the most loving thing Peter can do. The reason why... It is loving to urge, to compel, to come alongside of brothers and sisters in their personal holiness, in their personal walk with Jesus Christ is because the greatest joy possible for them is a life of holiness. We cannot believe that the greatest joy possible for us is the indulgence of all our needs, desires, and wants. Those things, while they may temporarily feel good, in the end, they do not bring us joy. Full and lasting joy is only found in Jesus Christ and the life submitted to him. And so it is a loving thing for Peter to say, Beloved, I urge you to live this way. And so Peter is graciously and lovingly urging them and us to live in a way that glorifies God. But before he tells us what he's desirous of us to do, he reminds us who we are, right? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This brings us back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where Peter begins by saying, Peter, an apostle of Uh, Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These brothers and sisters that that Peter is, is writing to were literally exiles. They were literally sojourners. Because they had been sent through the dispersion or the great scattering. They'd been sent from their homeland to this area. They are literally exiles. Not from the place they are living in. But they, like us, are also exiles and sojourners. No matter where they are in this world. Because this world is not our home. And that's really what Peter has in mind when he says, Beloved, I urge you as uh, sojourners and exiles. What he has in mind is not that these are our brothers and sisters who are living in 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 a place where they were not born. But they are brothers and sisters and we are brothers and sisters who live in a world that is not our home. This term sojourners means that it is a person that is living among another people in another country, but doing so without any allegiance to that country. That's a, that's a, a sojourner. You're living in a country, you're living among a people of that country, but your allegiance is not to the country you are living in. Your body may be there, but your heart is somewhere else. This is how we, as the children of God, as living stones, as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood, 
uh, as a chosen race, this is how we are called to live by God. Our bodies may be here, but our allegiance is somewhere else. This is Hebrews 13, 14. For we have... For uh, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The writer of Hebrews is saying that our allegiance is not to a city in this world, not to a a country in this world, not to a, um, a place in this world, but our allegiance and what we are seeking is the city of God that is to come. That our allegiance is not here. Our allegiance is where God is. This term here for exiles as sojourners or exiles is also could be translated uh, pilgrims. This is someone that has a, a, a temporary resident status, but they are longing to get home. Peter is reminding them of their foreignness, reminding them of where their true loyalty lies. And the implication here is, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, the implication is because you do not belong here, you must live differently. Because this is not where your allegiance lies, you must live differently. Now, this is not hard for us to figure out if we've ever been overseas before. Because if you've ever been overseas, you've experienced, I just don't belong here. Alicia and I went to to China last year. It was evident. We don't belong here. We like Chinese food. That's not Chinese food. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I'm not sure what that is. We just didn't belong. It was evident. It was clear. And I promise you, we had a deep longing to get home. That's the implication here. That because this world is not where our heart is, then we should look differently from this world. Now that should make us ask a question. How is it that we should look differently than the world? Well, Peter gives us the answer to that question. And the first way he does it is through a negative. You see in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and here it comes, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So how are you to live differently? How are you to look differently? The way that you are to look differently, the way that you are to look live differently is you are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This word abstain means to hold yourself away from something. It is a total removal. Peter is saying you are called by God to hold yourself away from the passions of the flesh. Now, what are these passions of the flesh? These passions of the flesh are things that are carnal. They're things that are not spiritual in nature. 
They are things that are indulged in at the expense of what God has to say. These passions of the flesh are things that go against the word of God. They may go with our natural uh, sinful nature, but they go against the word of God. And so we are called to hold ourselves against these things. As believers, the, the reality is, is that there are things that are out of bounds for us. That is not popular to say. Because some people take that, they hear that, and they say that's just legalism. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom. It's for joy. All things are lawful for me, Peter, or Paul says. But the reality is, yes, there is freedom in Christ. And yes, there is a joy that's found in Christ. But it's found through a life lived in holiness. A life that holds itself away from the passions of the flesh. There are things that are out of bounds for us. These are things that a habitual use would become sinful. So there are just clear, these things are wrong. Scriptures tell us these things are wrong. Those are out of bounds for us. But there are also things that the Scriptures may not explicitly say that are wrong, but we understand through the Scriptures that um, habitual use of those things cause them to be sinful. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. These are things of which habitual use would become sinful or the extent in which they are indulged in becomes sinful. Food in itself given to us by God for our enjoyment. Food in excess to the point of gluttony becomes sin. That's out of bounds for us. Does that make sense? Sex given to us by God for our enjoyment. Outside of the bounds of marriage, not good for us. These are things in which our attachment to them can become idolatry. They in themselves may be good things. But us overly attached to them moves our heart away from God and towards them. It becomes idolatry. These are our passions of the flesh. Listen, I say all of that just to say that there are clear and evident things that are passions of the flesh and there are other things that the extent in which we indulge in them become passions of the flesh. Peter does not give us a listing of what these things are. There are listings um, that can be found. One such place is Galatians chapter 5 starting in verse 19. Paul gives us a short list and Here's what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And here's what I think Paul means by that. You know what they are, dummy. Like I think that's what Paul's saying. Like you're, you're sitting back going, well, I don't know what the passions of the flesh. And Paul's saying, no, they're evident what the passions of the flesh are. You don't need me to tell you what they are. You don't need a preacher to preach to you what they are. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You know what the passions of the flesh are. Paul says, these things are evident. But just because you're playing dumb, let me give you a list of some, right? 
There's sexual immorality of all kinds. It's impurity of all kinds. It's sensuality of all kinds. It's idolatry. It's sorcery. It's enmity. It's strife. It's jealousy. It's fits of anger. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Things that clearly go against God's word. These are passions of the flesh. And we are called to abstain from them. I warn you. As I warned you before. Right? Because you act like you don't know what these are. But I've already told you. That's what Paul's saying here. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, this kind of life, a life that enjoys these passions of the flesh, no longer fits us. Because it's the kind of life we used to live before we were born again. But now that we've been born again, we are called to abstain from those things. We're commanded to hold ourselves away from those things. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you, uh, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of of mankind. Paul's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins and being dead in your trespasses and sins you lived a life that indulged in these things but now you've been given a, a new life. Now you've been born again. Now you've been given a new hope, a living hope, a new identity. You're a new creation and with that comes new joys. New passions, new desires. And these things that you once desired, you should no longer desire. Now you should desire other things. You're called to live differently than the rest of the world because you are sojourners and you are exiles here. And so Peter says, abstain from these things. And then look at what he says these things do, these passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. This is literally, they are looking to recapture you. That's what Peter means. These are things that want to recapture you. Now I say recapture you because they once had a hold on you. But Christ freed you from their dominion. And now they're actively seeking to get you back again. These passions of the flesh want to recapture you. And it does it by masquerading itself as something that promises joy and freedom that only brings bondage and despair. These are things that are waging war against your soul. And Peter says, put these things away. Abstain from them. A total removal of yourself from them. This is the negative aspect that, that Peter gives us on how we're to live differently. And by negative, I don't mean that it's bad. It's good that Peter gives us this. By negative, I just mean it's what we should not do. But then Peter gives us the positive or what we should do. And that's found in verse 12. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are now, because of who we are, because of our identity that's been changed, while we seek to abstain from the passions of the flesh, we are to live a life. We are to have a conduct among the Gentiles that is honorable. Keep your conduct, Peter says. This is um, your whole life. This is an all-encompassing term for conduct. Keep your conduct. All of your life, your whole lifestyle should be lived this way. See, the, the implication here is that there are no compartments in the kingdom of God. There's not the, the work compartment and the family compartment and the church compartment. There's not the Christ compartment and the Saturday night compartment. It is all controlled by the Holy Spirit. It is all God's. Every part of your life is God's. It belongs to him. You are bought with a price. Your life is not your own. Your whole life and your whole conduct belongs to God. And because of that, you are in your whole life to live honorably among the Gentiles. It's just a funny way to say that. And I read that and I thought, what in the world does that mean? To live honorably. And I think you see what it means in the context. But what it means is to live excellently. Or to live a life that is outwardly beautiful, that is morally good. As I studied the word, my favorite definition for it is praiseworthy. To live a life and to have a conduct in your whole life that is praiseworthy. I get that. I think you all get that. You, you want to, to live a life that's, that's, that's praiseworthy. Here's what I, I thought about that. I thought about growing up and... Um, going against things my parents told me to do. And I would have rather, I'd have rather got a, a flogging with a cat of nine tails than for my dad to say, and y'all even know, don't you? Just disappointed in you. It's like, oh. And now I'm a dad, I get to say that all the time. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> I'm just disappointed in you. That, that hurts more than anything because there's this, this, there's this, this desire in us to live in a way that's, that's praiseworthy. We want to receive praise from, from our parents. And I, I hope I, I raise kids that want to receive praise from their, their dad. When Peter says you are to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, what he's saying is you should live in a way that is praiseworthy. You should live in a way that is excellent. You should live in a way that is morally good, that is morally upright, that is outwardly beautiful. You should live in a way that even though they don't understand why you're living that way, they look at you and go, that looks pretty good to me. You see, we are to live this way as exiles and sojourners among people who we may be in proximity with, but of whom we have no allegiance. 
When Peter uses this term Gentiles, it means the nations. But what it, it means, what it carries with it, is the meaning of, of lost people or unsaved people. This is the unsaved world. That you are to keep your conduct among the unsaved world honorable. Now, why is this important? You, you, you see it in this, this word again, this phrase of, of purpose. So, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Keep yourself away from passions of the flesh and instead live a life that is praiseworthy in front of a lost world for one amazing purpose so that while they are slandering you they may glorify God on the day of visitation. This is crazy to me. Peter's saying, you're living this way in front of a lost world so that, and you see it, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These things are happening at the same time. They are slandering you, but at the same time, when God visits them, they give glory to God. This seems nuts to me. That's, Peter uses this phrase, uh, so when they, when they speak against you as, as evildoers, we don't, we don't use this word or this phrase really. An evildoer is one who is deserving of, of punishment. This is slander. As they are slandering you. So you're an evildoer, you're, you're one who deserves punishment. Yet, you know you're living a praiseworthy life. Right? This is just how out of step the world is with the kingdom of God. They think you're an evildoer. But what you're doing is really praiseworthy. No, nowhere is this more evident right now than within um, the homosexual agenda. I was having this conversation at work a few weeks ago. Like believers who stand for a biblical understanding of sexuality and marriage are slandered as evildoers. Yet we are seeking to live a life that's praiseworthy. Church, listen. We cannot be surprised when the world slanders us. We cannot be surprised when the world speaks negatively of us. You realize when Peter says this, when they speak against you as evildoers, I guarantee you in Peter's mind is a trial and it's the trial of Jesus Christ. In John 18, in verse 29, it says, And Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And this man is Jesus Christ. Why have you brought him here for punishment? What accusation do you have against him? And then listen to verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
What were they saying of Jesus, Jesus Christ? They were saying, this man is an evildoer. He's an evildoer. And he deserves punishment. Meanwhile, Jesus Christ has lived the most honorable and praiseworthy life of anyone who's ever lived. If the world said that of Jesus, may we never be surprised when they say that of us because we desire to live like Jesus. We live a life. We have a conduct that is upright, that is honorable, that is praiseworthy. Just like our Lord and Savior. So don't be shocked when the world slanders you. But realize that by God's grace, even during their slandering, they may see your good deeds and it just might cause them to glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I had to do some study because I wasn't sure what this meant, this day of, of visitation. What is this day of visitation? Because, see, I read that and I thought, well, I know what that is. That's when Jesus comes back again. That's the day of visitation. Well, I don't think that's what it is. And the reason why I don't think that is because we begin to see what it is as we study systematically all of the scriptures. And that's why it's important to do a systematic study of the scriptures. So when you get to a place like this that says, what is a day of visitation? You don't just think to yourself, that's when Jesus comes back. That's what I thought. Anybody else think that? But you look at God's word and say, what could that mean? Let's see where else it talks about a day of visitation. You see this phrase and this idea of God visiting his people all throughout the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, when it says God would visit his people, he did so for two purposes, for blessing or for judgment. It would say that God would visit his people and he would visit his people in their day for either blessing or judgment. I'll give you just a few examples. You can write these down. I'm not going to read them. You can go back in your study and look at them. In Isaiah chapter 10 verse 3, it says that God visited his people and he did so for judgment. It was a visitation of judgment. In Jeremiah 27, 22, says that God is visiting his people and he's doing so to bless them, to rescue them, to give them salvation. The scriptures say that God visited the people of Israel as he brought them out of captivity in Egypt. So his visitation there for his people was one of blessing, one of salvation. It says that God visited Hosea, I believe, to meet her in her barrenness, to bless her. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the God visiting his people, it being a day of visitation, and it being either for blessing or for judgment. That's the Old Testament. And that visitation is in their life. In the New Testament, you see the same uh, phraseology. But it, interestingly, in the New Testament, it is used exclusively for blessing or salvation. I'll give you some examples. In Luke chapter 1, verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is God visiting us in Jesus Christ and he doing so for our redemption, for our salvation. In Luke 17, verse 16, it says, Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Speaking of Jesus Christ. In Luke 19, starting in verse 41, And when they drew near uh, and saw the city, he wept over it. This is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden for your, from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down the ground, down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is Jesus saying, you didn't know the time of your visitation or when I came to bring salvation to you. The day of visitation means that it is the day when God comes to you and offers to you salvation. That's the day of visitation. So here's what Peter's saying. We are called to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are waging war against our soul, seeking to recapture us. And instead, we are called to live a life, to have a lifestyle among a lost world that is honorable, that is praiseworthy, that is beautiful, that is morally upright, that is morally good. So that while they are slandering us, God might visit them for their salvation and they respond in faith in giving God the glory. Do you, do you see it? You see what Peter's saying here? Listen, when you take verse 9, which is, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you take verse 9 and your proclamation and you join it with verse 12. Conduct yourselves among the Gentiles honorably so that while they call you evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. When you take those two, those two verses, proclaim with your mouth the excellencies of God, that is evangelism, and live a life that is praiseworthy in front of a lost world so that when God visits a lost world on the day of their salvation, they can see your good deeds and God can use that as a means for their salvation. When you take your proclamation and you take your life and those things come together in unison, God begins to do unbelievable things in our evangelism. They go together. 
our proclamation, and our living. When a Christian lifestyle and a Christian's language match, amazing things happen. This is evangelism. And this is how we are called to live because of who God has made us to be. We live a life, we have a conduct that is honorable. So that while they slander us, by God's grace, he would visit them and they would be saved. And they'd be saved because they would say, I'm going to tell you, there's something about this guy's life that makes no sense to me and has made no sense to me. Until God's grace broke through and then it all made sense. And then I realized, that's the life I need. This is how God uses his church to reach the world for Jesus Christ. He uses his church, he uses his people through their proclamation and through their living. They go together, church. They go together. That's what Peter's doing here. Now, I read this and as a preacher, I want to go, I want to say, all right. So what does it mean to live honorably? And how do we live that way? That's where, I, that's where I'm headed as a, as a preacher, right? I got good news for you. That's exactly where Peter's headed for the rest of the letter. And so that's what he's doing. He's about to show us how it is that we live honorably in front of a lost world. You do it through submission to authority. That's next week. You do it, 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 speaking as far as government is concerned, which is a hot topic. And when I realized that's where we're leaving for vacation, and when I realized that's where Jacob would be, I just grinned because I swear every time we get to like a tough topic, I'm out of here and Jacob preaches. Um, And so I just grinned inside because he hates politics too. So I was like, yeah, he's going to love this one. Um, but, But how... Your, your submission to, to government is, is an aspect of your living honorably. How your good servants, how your good husbands and wives, how your good sufferers, how your good stewards of the grace of God. I mean, these things, they're just about to start falling like, not like dominoes. And it's all how we are to live a life honorably before the Gentiles. So it's coming. I hope you're here. But for us today, the call for Peter is to live a kind of life that matches the proclamation that you give. Now, the reality is that for some of you, there is no proclamation and that needs to change. You need to live a life that's marked by the proclamation of the grace of God. You need to open your mouth and tell people about what God has done in you. And then we need to be careful to do our best to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to live honorably. And we need to do that as we are joined together as the people of God, loving one another, coming alongside one another. Beloved, I urge you, This is who we are to be as a church. This is what God has called us to be. This is how God has called us to live. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. 
To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.